like, do you know what people in Wyoming and India have in common? Wyoming and India? I'm just, my mind just went completely blank. I can't <laughs> think of any possible thing that people in Wyoming and India have in common. They both listen to the adult music podcast. <laughs> really? They do. Do you have evidence of that? Yes, I do. Just because I happen to be looking at our statistics when the date turned over, actually the month, and yeah. so the first two downloads of November were from Wyoming and India. Well, how about that? Yeah. Thank you to both of our Wyoming and India listeners. I'm just <laughs> no, amazed right. that anybody in India listens to us, but I think that's great. I'm hey, really a billion people. There got to be some people who like classical and jazz music. Well, I remember I knew a lot of engineers back in when, my school days, and uh, there were a lot of Indians working at those companies, and they liked classical music too. We used to go out yeah. a lot to hear them. That's so great. I guess it's pretty big there. I don't know. And well, the UK has risen to a constant number three in the past couple of months. So. That's nice to see because they have a lot of media on both classical music and jazz. They really. I like the way they kind of, they're always kind of promoting like their own music. They're really good at that, you know, right. and they're good critics too. I like the uh, English critics. They know what they're talking about. <laughs> and we've had a lot of good UK jazz, We've got mm -hmm. a lot of those good record labels there, Ubuntu right. and others. So yeah, it's good to have listeners over there and all around the world, wherever you are. Thanks for listening to the Adult Music Podcast, the podcast with music for the mature mind. That's right. And we don't have any other bad news this week. Uh, yeah. No deaths or anything to report. But good news. We should get people to like sync up our voices here. So I'm Mike over here and the, the suave Barry White sounding guy over there is. <laughs> this is Russ over here. This uh, podcast is like um, hearing um, Barry White and Bert from Sesame Street talk about music. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we both got faces for radio, so. <laughs> anyway, as always, uh, we're going to bring you some great new releases in classical and jazz music this week. And hey, it's piano, piano everywhere, Mike. Not always the focus, but piano is going to show up on all the yeah. recordings we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, it's like the piano isn't the main focus. Well, it is on the first one I'm going to talk mm -hmm. about, but it's just sort of a an extra instrument in the other one. So you just kind of made that our theme this week. And for all the music we're going to talk about, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. And you can get all the music in one continuous run on Deezer, CD quality streaming from France. They also have the podcast if you want to listen to everything in one place. And if you can't see the full description or the recording list and the links are not clear on your app, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's clear and easy to follow there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend. Take a moment, give us a ranking, write a short review that helps us get listed in the recommendations for the music categories. And you can come over and follow us on our Facebook page as well to get extra info and new releases throughout the week. You can see our handsome radio faces over there. Leave a message or comment. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We also want to recommend, as always, our friends, AJ and Johnny, at yeah. The Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. They look at several versions of one jazz standard in each episode. It comes out twice a month. They play little snippets of each version, talk about the history of the original and the different versions, and you can find a link to their podcast in the episode description. And at the end of this episode, you'll hear a little audio promo from them. And we've got a date set up now to go guest on their podcast. So Yeah, I got to listen to those uh, songs now. They gave us homework, just like That's we right. gave them homework. Yeah, they were on our podcast. We're going over there. We've got a standard pick. We're not going to tell you what it is yet. 
Well, we're not going to tell you at all. They have that's yeah. their gig, you know. So they they have to do that. Hopefully, that'll be up before the end of the year. I don't know how many episodes they have in the can or whatever over there, ready to go. But that's something to look forward to. It may come out in the new year. We don't. It could know. be. We don't know. They might just put it up right away, though. You don't know right. what they're going to do. And just as they play snippets on their podcasts, we play samples. Actually, there could be some extended samples because I just can't stop it once it starts going. Yeah, pretty soon we're going to be like, uh, you know, the excesses of ancient Rome on this podcast. Yeah. We're going to be playing entire albums. Lawyers are going to be coming after us, but, you know. Anyway, we do that all because we care about musical artistry. And here's our fair use disclaimer. The music sample clips that we play are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that our listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. And we also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. Yeah. There you have it. I'm not stopping in the middle of a bass solo tonight. It's going to go right to the end. No so. stopping in the middle of a bass solo? Okay. All right. Well, piano everywhere. We've got a big one uh, to start that idea out with yeah. in the classical category tonight let's launch we? into it now last week we had a very long podcast and this this week we didn't do much uh, chatter at the beginning to make it longer but uh i've got long notes for oh boy this first album because it's a great one okay this one might be one for the ages dare i say it's the bach goldberg variations by one of our favorite pianists mm. vikingur olafsson on the piano, and this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. Now, I got to say something about his name. First of all, I was reading in, that in Iceland, you know, Olafsson is a patronymic. It's not really a proper family name. It's just something the son of Olaf. Okay. And uh, they generally call each other by their first names. And on the CD cover, it actually just says Vikingur Bach. It doesn't say oh. Olafsson Bach. So I'm going to go for Vikingur. Somebody could correct me if they, or fill me in a bit more about how that works. <laughs> be interesting, yeah. I don't have any Icelandic friends, okay? I just don't know any. I can't help you there either. <laughs> I, I've got Finnish friends, but no Icelandic friends. Right. I would like some, <laughs> if anybody wants to be my friend. Let me just start with the, his notes. In his notes to the recording, Vikingur says, um, borrowing Ben Johnson's words on Shakespeare, we performers must somehow feel like we have taken part in its creation that we have reinvented it in some way for our contemporaries. Well, I hmm. think uh, Vikingur can feel that way about this recording, but more on that after we kind of sample it and listen to it and talk about it. Vikingur himself says he's wanted to record this work for 25 years. He was inclined wow. to think of it. Yeah, this is a long time. And I don't blame him for waiting because it's uh, weighty and it's really hard to play. Yeah, That's one of the later pieces people will play. He was inclined to think of it as a grand commanding cathedral of music, as are many other pianists, magnificent in its structure and intricate in its ornamentation. Now he finds another metaphor more apt, that of a grand oak tree, no less magnificent, but somehow organic, living, and vibrant, its forms both responsive and regenerative, its leaves constantly unfurling to produce musical oxygen for its admirers through some metaphysical time-bending photosynthesis. So we're involved in this when we're mm. listening to this uh, recording or to uh, Goldberg Variations in general. All right, let's just start with the aria. We all know it very well. Before I say anything about it, let's just hear it because it's, it's so famous. You all know this. Let's hear his approach.
right, nothing really fancy there. Okay, so pretty straightforward. He's got those really perfectly even kind of uh, yeah. ornaments, though. You know, they and they really every note stands out. Even the ornaments, they kind of sound like they're part of the um, the main part of the writing when he right. plays them. Except that he does manage to, I guess, somehow in the phrasing, make them seem like they're ornaments at the same time. I'm going to be quoting a New York Times interview that Vikingor did that I found on the internet, and I'll credit them when I when it comes up because he says so many interesting things in this that he doesn't say in the booklet. Although he says interesting things in the CD booklet too. He called this aria, this opening piece, the ode to life, the ode to the birth of something. And yeah, it will give birth to these 30 variations that we're going to hear coming up. So as you heard, it's played gently, very straightforwardly. And what I noticed most are the careful trills where every hammer hitting of the string registers, sensitively taken for the repeat, the tone is slightly muted, and right away I would say this is a sensitive performance, very comfortable, and I particularly liked the clear but sensitively played bass line in the left hand. Please, well, all the voices in Bach are really important, but you got to listen to the bass. The bass is extremely important in Bach, and really it's the bass notes that are the um, basis of the variations. It's not the melody, although you will hear the melody being played around with too. I'm going to just go by the variations. I won't mention track numbers. This is pretty easy. The track numbers are one step ahead of the variations right. all the time. So variation one, Vikingur refers to the first 14 variations as like a privileged childhood. And he said this in the New York Times interview. They're like seeing the world and seeing what it can be all coming from the same cell. Tragedy is as yet an unknown quantity. So for example, you know, the worst thing that happens to you when you're a child is what you struck out in a baseball game. So it's hardly a big right. problem, but it's with you all day. You know, you just want to get that next chance or whatever, okay? So not real problems yet. This is played in the style that I've come to associate with Vikingur's Bach playing. It's a fast staccato with a sewing machine mechanism-like unyieldingness to the attack, but highly, highly virtuosic. And boy, is this going to get more virtuosic as these variations go. We got to hear him at the end, but we'll get to that when we do. I'm not saying it's mechanical. It's not. It breathes well, and the contours of the melody are in the forefront, but this is pretty amazing playing right away. And this is really Vikinger's fingerprint here, because he likes the staccato sound, and he uses it in a lot of his uh, performances of other music as well. But let's listen to this. Boy, that was like the whole A section, right? <laughs> I, got, I got through. Wow, it was amazing. By the way, did you notice the clarity of the bass in that? Go back and listen to it if you didn't. It's really fantastic. He gets just such fantastic clarity out of all of the voices. Version 2, staccato in the bass and a less quick staccato in the right hand. The Vikingur stamp again. Version 4, we get the first canon. This is the unison one. Staccato bass and the sound of two different lines weighted completely differently in the right hand is a bit astonishing. That's in track four, variation three. I always get a sense of uh, sewing needle stitching going in and out of the cloth rapidly when I hear Vikingor's rapid staccato. Mm. It's a sound I've never heard before I've heard him. He really plays staccato in a unique way. They're really, I think we can even call it the Vikingor staccato. It really just sounds unique. And that's going to be a word that I'm going to use for this performance. It's unique. Variation 4. Contrast a bit in that it's in 3-4 or possibly 6-8. I haven't checked my score in a long time. And the melodic waves on the ocean-like flow is brought to the forefront, so it's like got triplets. 
Variation 5 is incredibly fast and like staccato in the bass. This comes across as almost pointillist rapid notes, like a digitally sampled signal connecting into a solid seeming light. What I mean is, if you've ever seen a graph of the sound on like a compact disc, on analog audio you get a wave, and on the uh, digital you get dots that kind of form the wave, but they don't connect into the wave, So, mm-hmm. but you're kind of hearing it as a wave. I almost feel like Vikinger's playing sort of does that like you get a sense of the the flow of the melody but he's playing it all staccato and it doesn't connect so i feel like this is like uh almost like a a digital (laughs) kind of wave style of playing (laughs) i don't think he could i seriously don't think he would play this way if he wasn't born into like a digital age like we have i don't think he's doing this consciously but i think it just kind of is the way he hears this let's listen to a sample of this variation And we get the repeat. Wow. (laughs) Oh, my. If your kids play it like that, just send them straight to music school. In fact, you don't just think (laughs) it's skip music school. Just um, get get them on a stage. Anyway, track seven, variation six. This is the second canon. Every three is going to be a variation. This is going to be a canon. This is on the uh, second. Again, Vikinger staccato in the bass. The upper voices have an astonishing differentiated clarity to them. Variation seven. Al tempo di giga. So this is a dance rhythm, a jig. It's 3-4, which is, well, jig is 6-8, I should say that. This is unique in my listening experience. The tone is shaded, a bit muted, and the notes themselves don't sustain enough to run into each other, so it comes across as a staccato-like effect, or maybe we can call it the vikingur legato. It doesn't quite connect, but it almost does. The ornamentation is exceptionally sensitive. Really beautiful technique here. <laughs> I'm going to be sampling all of these. Let's hear this one, too. There's something unique about it, because you usually hear it a little faster, you know, much more straightforwardly legato. Moving on, variation eight, uh, rapidly taken and requiring some virtuosity. By now, we're expecting uh, Vikinger to be playing with a staccato-like approach, as he does to an extent here, though there's some sustain. He keeps his various melodic lines clear this way. Extraordinary balance between the voices. That's a real trick that pianists need to learn, and some of them are like superhuman at it, and I think Vikinger is one of those people. Variation 9, Canon on the 3rd, a slower, gentler approach. The touch is so light that it creates a music box quality, and Vikinger achieves a delicate sound in this one. Variation 10 is a fugetta, starting like a fugue, but doesn't continue that way. Or well, it's a little fugue, I think, actually. Played at fortissimo volume, very boldly, so this kind of comes as a little surprise. All of the voices come in at approximately the same volume as they would on a harpsichord, so he's kind of got that harpsichord sort of... Um, well, it's too loud for a harpsichord, but he's got the uh, the same volume sort of harpsichord sound going. There's something noble about the approach here, and there's some great dissonant passing notes in this one. Variation 11, staccato in the upper and lower voice. 
the two most audible. It sounds like there's a middle voice in there at times. A dancing quality occasionally peeks out of the texture, lovely sensitive slowing, and gentle closing chords. Version 12 is the Canon at the 4th, played with some boldness to the attack as well. Staccato in the bass, and Vikinger's quasi-staccato in the upper voices, which I should probably call quasi-legato. At 52 seconds, there's a surprising transition to the B section of this variation, drawn out by Vikinger here. Variation 13, uh, for the first time, there's a brief pause before this variation starts. The individual notes have some more sustain than Vikinger generally uses, so this brings contrast. This comes across as more song-like than what we've heard in the variations so far. It's a fairly long variation at just over four minutes, with the melody spooling out as it goes. Variation 14, lots of trills in this one and half staccatos. In the B section, the bass really stands out and its lines are beautifully shaped. Okay, so childhood is over and we get to variation 15 according to Vikinger's kind of description of the work. This is in the minor key and uh, this is a, it's a canon on the fifth. In moto contrario, contrary motion. He describes this as a bit like the first time we lose someone close to us, whether it's a grandparent or something, but it's someone like aged and sort of far away from you in generations. The first time you experience tragedy, it's surprising. Uh, nothing tells you there's going to be a minor episode in what has so far been an incredibly joyous work. So let's hear the, uh, the surprising opening to this one. Surprisingly, he gets more of a sense of tragedy out of that than out of the famous uh, 25th, is it, variation? The variation 25 is the really famous one, but we'll get to that when we do. So as you heard here, there's a pause again before this starts. The way it starts gives one a feeling that the tragedy has already happened, and the protagonist in this case is in a state of light shock. Vikinger doesn't play legato in Bach, but there's more sustain here than we've heard in any of the variations so far. The playing is sensitive, and Vikinger lets the music speak its tragedy for itself, rather than doing anything to draw it out via phrasing. It's already there, and Vikinger just makes sure everything keeps moving and that the voices are well balanced. This variation doesn't come across as particularly heavy, due to Vikinger's light touch. I like the way at 4 minutes and 5 seconds, the last note of the arriving arpeggio is just allowed to drift off. There's a feeling of loneliness in the playing, at around the 4 minute and 30 second mark, really in the whole piece. There's a light decelerando on the last note, so it's slowing down, of the rising arpeggio, and the work ends with a plea. This is half of the variations, and the next movement will almost introduce a second act. A Vikinger leaves a pause between these two variations. All right, variation 16 is an overture. It's a French overture. And uh, in the New York Times, uh, Vikinger said, you have to bounce back in life. The French overture is symbolic as a start. Indeed, when we hear the French overture rhythm at the beginning, we think of the overture to a, an opera, a French opera from the Baroque era. It's played a bit faster here, though, than we usually hear it. And it sounds like Vikinger is focusing on the forward movement of the music. 
the opening sort of loses its regal feel, like you can't really imagine somebody making an entrance to this music. It's a little too fast. That said, the movement of the various lines is pretty compelling, and at 1 minute and 52 seconds when the fugue starts, the speed of the voices is exciting. The final chord has a brief decelerando. It slows down. Parishion 17. Staccato. Very fast. Even playful. Wikinger keeps up the energy for the entire two minutes of this variation. There's a caffeinated, searching feel to this. <laughs> We're going to get more caffeinated <laughs> as we go on. Variation 18, mid-tempo, quasi-staccato, or almost legato. The bass is staccato, but this comes across as more spacious than the previous variation. It's quiet and a bit shy-sounding in Vikinger's hands. Variation 19, taken a bit more slowly than I recall. The bass is clear and quasi-legato, as are the right-hand lines. This one is rather naughty, as far as the lines go. Variation 20 has a rushing rhythm and tricky lines with amazingly smooth, fast scales in what I think is the right hand. Uh, the theme sort of ping-pongs around in staccato, bouncing off walls. Very cheerful and amazing playing and balance. All right, variation 21, the canon on the 7th. Vikinger mentions there's a chromatic lament in the bass in his New York Times interview. And this is more morning. So we've gotten out of the previous morning and now life hits us again. Let's hear uh, this one. And he stretches that out. Actually, this one is very touching and rather pretty, I would say, too. I really mm. like the uh, theme. So there was a slight pause before that started on the recording. So you heard the sad legato feel. And the canonic theme is memorable. Um, I found myself following its contour throughout the um, variation. It's played sensitively, as you heard. Wikinger plays sensitively throughout on this one with a light... Well, he in all of them, but they're all different. With a light touch, and he shades the material in the B section even further. Variation 22, a la breve. Uh, another bounce back <laughs> you know, to life again after the morning. Not super cheery, but positive and slightly bold sounding. Variation 23, we're back to the highly energetic, bouncing staccato that Wikinger favors so much in his Bach playing. He rather underplays the repeated note theme that pops up every now and again, having us focus on the intertwining staccato lines. Variation 24 is the canon at the octave. Uh, has triplets in the melody, and this has a pleasant, flowing style to it, almost legato. This one skips pleasantly along, carefree, setting us up for the next variation. So let me uh, set you up here by playing a sample of this. Carefree, and then 
the big tragedy strikes. This is the famous uh, variation um, 25. He says here um, in the New York Times article, uh, tragedy comes in a different way. It's great tragedy this time. And a lot of um, pianists have made a lot of this variation. It's very long and it's powerful. Keyboard players, as I said, have made a big deal out of this tragic movement over the years. But I think Wikinger plays it down a bit, giving it a bit more speed than usual, as he did earlier in the first um, minor key variation that we heard which makes the lines feel like they're headed somewhere and keeps us more focused on the road ahead rather than the current devastation in the harmony. There are some jarring passing dissonances that come out well in Wikinger's crystal clear playing of the melodic lines. The repeat of the A section is played with a more muted sound. The B section starts at 4 minutes and 44 seconds. This is almost 10 minutes long in this particular performance and continues in the same muted sound but crescendos a bit as tension builds. The material quickly crescendos to a dramatic peak, then decrescendos again. There's a stark quality to the playing by the end, a real sense of being alone with the space around the material. I think Wikinger might have slowed the tempo a bit for this effect, but I can't tell. It's certainly a memorable performance of this famous tragic variation. I'm going to sample the beginning. I can't really give you the sense of the... Um, the ending kind of loneliness and tragedy with the slowing down because you have to hear the whole movement to get that sense otherwise you won't have a context otherwise so I'll just play this a little bit from the beginning so you can hear how this very famous variation goes some great dissonances mm -hmm. on those passing notes too it's, and he makes them stand out so starkly I just love it alright variation 26 after the tragedy again you come back and then from 27 to 29 and I guess we could even say this about variation 30 we get some super virtuosic variations these four really are something else on variation 26 the right hand is exceptionally fast and exceptionally even we absolutely have to sample this Fasten your seatbelt for this. This is really amazing. heard the whole A section there. The left hand is ridiculous. I, I know. You're hearing it in the right hand. And the other thing is you also want to notice it's not just the speed. It's the absolute evenness yeah. of the spacing and the um, the evenness of the tone. Like some of them don't, it's not what my piano teacher used to call humpy, you know, where one note sticks out <laughs> no, not at among all. the other ones. These are like extremely um, smooth and even. It's really astonishing. Boy. All right, variation 27, canon at the ninth. No pause between this and the previous variation. The hands hand off the melody to each other, and then they go into different lines. Still very fast, 
Variation 28, no pause. Wiegenger connects the two variations again. The right hand is playing a rapid, even trill, very long, and again, astonishingly even technique here. Wiegenger keeps the left hand theme playful as that trill is sounding. When the trills stop, Wiegenger achieves a bouncy rhythm. This is on the border of a manic and playful, perhaps a caffeinated game. Variation 29. This is always kind of an odd one for me because it's the chords in both hands. Takes this chord-based variation at fast speed as well. The rapid scales surprise. The clarity of each line while all of this is going on is amazing. I think when they make AI play music, I'll hold up this performance and point out its expression within the great virtuosity to demonstrate AI's shortcomings because I don't <laughs> think AI is going to be able to do this. Actually, let's, let's sample this. Holy cow. That's outrageous. <laughs> I know. And then I like what Wiegenger says about this uh, last variation. This is the Quod Libet. And he says that uh, the variations finish in triumphant glory. Wiegenger says that this Quod Libet with its two popular melodies that invite us to join the sort of musical merrymaking said to have occurred at Bach family gatherings. He calls this the pieces Ode to Joy from like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, where I'll mention werden Bruder, or all men shall be brothers. This variation brings exaltation, salvation, and triumphant jubilation. And in that New York Times interview, he mentions one of the tunes is called Kraut und Rüben haben mich vertieben. I hope I wrote that right. Which means parsnips and cabbages have betrayed me. And <laughs> it's one of the most famous folk songs of Europe. Of course, it has different words in different countries. And it's like a return to his roots for Bach, because it's a folk song, it's a folk rhythm, a folk melody. Um, the person singing the song is sick of all those vegetables and wants meat. So this is an anti-vegan song too, I guess. <laughs> um, the fact that folk songs are used in this variation signals to Wikinger that the hero is finally there in the company of people from his background, from his roots. So it's like Christmas Day with the family, I guess, or here in Japan it would be New Year's. To him, this is what links it to Beethoven's Alle Menschen werden Bruder. Uh, it has that camaraderie and this kind of collective experience of belonging to a bigger entity than the individual. It's an individual who has traveled through these 29 variations, and now we encounter our family and friends. This variation feels like a party. Well, we have to hear this, right? Here we go. Can I just say, I really love, this is my favorite of all of the variations in this um, piece, and I've tried to play it, and I can tell you it's really hard. I couldn't play it, because it's got all these, like, I never really learned to play fugues. That's the problem. Someone had to sit me down and teach me that note against note 
thing, but I don't know. It just that it didn't go that way for me. I don't know why. Okay, so Vikinger here plays the opening inviting melody with a welcoming feel. At 51 seconds, we hear the Cabbages variation with the song. And then the two are combined in the first minute, which is pretty amazing. That's what makes this so hard to play, is you have to play the two sort of pieces at the same time in different voices. It ends with a sense of elated finality. And uh, Vikinger lets the last note ring. And then we hear the aria da capo again. Now, Vikinger says, this magically feels, after all we've heard, like meeting an old and dear friend after a long separation. It sounds like we never left it at all, and harmonically, we never did. Vikinger wonders how different this work would have been had Bach not given us the unusual chance to marvel at the aria in its pure, original form once more. Because usually variations don't repeat the theme at the end. They just end with the last variation. So we savor this farewell that also feels like a new beginning. What are we experiencing? A reunion or a reminiscence? Without this cyclic reencounter, we would not find this work such an intuitive metaphor for the human condition, for how we experience life and the passage of time. We would not be left wondering, like the ancient philosopher Heraclitus, whether you can ever really step into the same river twice, the same stream, the same Bach. Ah, I see what he said, what he did there. Bach mm. is the German word for stream. In the New York Times interview, Wiekinger says the arias repeat feels like you're looking back at your life. And in this performance, the opening has a muted tone to it, played very sensitively. For this repeat, Wiekinger doesn't play the repeats and keeps the B section at the same quiet dynamic level as the A section. It's gentle and it feels distant and contemplative, perhaps due to looking over that life that Wiekinger refers to in his notes. And there it is. Wiekinger has his own unique sound on the piano, which is created by his staccato method of attack in Bach, and I think everything else is derived from that. As a result, this performance comes across as uniquely uh, Wiekinger-like. You can't really compare it to any other um, performances. Now, a lot of the critics, I've been looking at uh, what critics have been saying about this, and they like to compare him to Glenn Gould, who's really famous for this piece. It was his first and last piece that he ever recorded. But aside from the astonishing like virtuosity and the sort of quirkiness of uh, Gould's playing, Wiekinger's sort of staccato could be considered a quirky approach as well. There's nothing in common between these two except for the fact that they're both unique. Now, Glenn Gould's is the Glenn Gould Goldberg variations, and this is very much the Wiekinger Olesson variations, uh, Goldberg variations. I might actually be able to pull this, if you were to play me a series of 10 recordings of the Goldberg variations, like one particular movement, and I heard 10 of them, I would probably be able to pull this one out of the group, because it's that unique. I've never found myself so attentive to a recording of these works, just the clarity of all the lines and the amazing virtuosity he shows, especially in the last variations, 26 to 29. This really is a performance in its own class, and one that will stand as a contemporary benchmark, absolutely. Anyone interested in the Goldberg variations absolutely must hear this. And what I get out of this staccato, interestingly, is fluidity mm. because of the evenness, as you said, no humpiness yeah. to yeah, them. Yeah. So it's perfectly even and it comes out with an overall musical fluid movement. Incredible speed, 
and continuity in the lines. Just wonderful. You've already covered all the details. I've enjoyed all of his recordings just for the musicality, the technique, and unique programming. Here, that's not an issue, but what he does is gives a really interesting interpretation and an arc and some extra meaning that helps shape these, as you've explained in your mind. So this recording is no exception. Just another wonderful musical experience. And like you said, I've heard various recordings of them, but I didn't find myself so automatically paying attention through the whole program as I did listening to this one. And I thought that was something special. Yeah, absolutely riveting. What the critics are saying online are right. This really is special, I think, and um, needs to be heard. Hey, and he's taking it on tour all around the world. Uh, He's going to be in Japan. Three performances here, I think, and lots of other places too. So There's at least one near us, actually, in Osaka. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Which will be cool. All right, let's go on to the next uh, recording. This is uh, Stained Glass by uh, the now 22-year-old Swedish violinist, Johan Dalene. And uh, he's uh, got Christian Ile Hadland on the piano. And this is on Bis, or I should say Bis, okay? I think the French would say Bis, though. And it's an SACD if you are lucky enough to have, or happy enough to have one of those um, players. Happy and lucky. Well, these days, <laughs> and rich, because and rich, yeah. <laughs> they're really expensive. Now, I happen to have a Sony Blu-ray player, which happens to have the SACD stuff built into it, so I, oh. I got away cheap. I've got the uh, big, heavy Luxman one, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> that would cost quite a bit, I think. These days, it would. Yeah, these days I would it not would. be able to uh, buy it again, probably. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of in that situation now, too. <laughs> Sadly enough. Okay, we heard Johann Dahlene play the uh, Sibelius and Nielsen uh, violin concertos, and we thought he was, you know, now he was being, he's being praised as a great violinist and um, this great young violinist who's going to be a big name in the future. And I believe that, but I wasn't really too happy, I remember, about that recording. I thought it was a little too straightforward that he wasn't expressive enough mm. in his phrasing. Like he wasn't flexible enough. Well, on these works, and especially with this pianist, Christian Ile Hadland, he doesn't have that issue. This works really, really well. Because yeah. I remember hearing him with this pianist on a recording of Norwegian, I think Norwegian, um, violin and piano works too. I don't know if we talked about that on the uh, podcast, but I did hear it. Anyway, here, he's got a program called Stained Glass, and this really is a uh, hodgepodge, I guess, of uh, pieces. I don't know how it really holds together, except the stained glass title comes from um, the last composer we're going to hear, Grazina Bacewicz. Anyway, let's start this. We have some, um, it's kind of a greatest hits, a little bit of uh, violin and piano, with a few uh, unfamiliar pieces thrown in. The first one is the uh, very familiar Fratres by Arvo Pert, a very famous piece now, especially because of its recording for violin and piano by Keith Jarrett and Guidon Kremer on the violin. Mm. It's a classic on the ECM label, one of the uh, most famous classical recordings ever made of a contemporary work. Anyway, here, Dalene is very expressive on these opening arpeggios, which are usually played straight. He makes the dynamic ebb and flow, and also slowly crescendos up to the entry of the first crashing piano chord. So his approach there is a little unusual to this opening. I, I remember when Kremer played it, he just played them straight, and they just slowly crescendoed. He's got crescendos within the crescendo. Dalene does. The recording is rich and spacious with live-sounding room ambience. The piano chords in the first variation seem a bit fast, but Dalene articulates his line with its harmonics and soft dynamics as clearly as crystal. In the second slowly arpeggiated variation, Dalene gets a light, forlorn feel out of the line, which is impressing me. The performance is coming across as fresh. 
He aggressively takes the next chugging rhythm section, then lightens up on the triplets that follow. It's hard to know where to sample, so I'm going to go for the, the loudest part because... <laughs> <laughs> then your brother <laughs> will be able to hear it in the car. my brother yeah. will be able to hear it in his car, and so will you, listener. I don't know what you're doing now. So this is the uh, passionate outburst at uh, 6 minutes and 22 seconds. Let's uh, go for this one. This is not my favorite part of the work, though, but uh, that's okay. We'll be able to hear it at least. I think I might be overstating my welcome with that, uh, <laughs> with that the length of that uh, <laughs> sample. So let's go on. I really like the way they come out of that too. I like the phrasing, by the way, that we just heard. There's a slight lag, as though he's pushing a heavy weight in mm. this section. Dalena takes the sobbing after the outburst at seven minutes and forty seconds with good emotional content. It touched me as it did in the Kremer and uh, Jarrett recording. His broken up line in the next variation is sensitive too. The last variation is sensitively played on the violin's harmonics. The pianist, I think, lets go of the last chord too soon. Despite that, this is one of the better performances I've heard of this work. But I have to say, Kremer and Jarrett are unbeatable. Tracks two through four, another favorite of mine, Maurice Ravel, sonata in G major for violin and piano. This has three movements. The first movement, Allegretto, Starts with uh, the pianist Hadland getting a gentle sparkling sound on the opening pattern and plays down the left hand entry, which clashes with the right hand. It's all pretty and sparkling, and I like the piece this way. Usually they're played as contrasting lines. Okay, so he's made this a little prettier, I think. We hear Dalinet playing legato for the first time on the album, and he has an appealing tone and way with phrasing. The duo's keeping everything light and sparkling really pays off for the melody in this movement. In the violin at 1 minute and 45 seconds, the dynamic then gets a little stronger and the playing more urgent. From this point on, the violin and piano sound more at odds with each other, which is as it should be in this movement. There's a great violin quick bowing double note descent that ends quietly and sul ponticello, stunning at 5 minutes and 10 seconds or so. Once the violin comes out of this, a slow crescendo has the music soaring in the 6th minute. All of this is beautifully planned out and played by the duo, and I'm especially impressed with Dalene here. The movement peters out to the opening piano line, sounding under a sustained violin note. Second movement is labeled blues and moderato. The violin is strummed and plucked for the blues effect at the beginning, and it's also got these sort of swooping, sort of blue note yeah. kind of in the melody too. It's, it's really cute, actually. The piano picks up the quarter note chords as the violin swoons its blue noted melody above. Let's uh, have a sample of the opening of this. Thank you. 
It's a very appealing melody. It's yeah. got that kind of you know American sort of quality to it. Dalena catches the idiom well enough, although again, this is an art music blues, and it's rather light in feel. As the movement goes on, Dalena gets playful with his effects while always maintaining the movement's line. The piano starts uh, the third movement out, which is a perpetuum mobile movement, rather carefully with the perpetuum mobile engine, shall we say, revving slowly. It's up to speed by 25 seconds, and Dalenez really starts flying once he comes in. Let's listen to his entry. Well, it's not his entry, but let's just listen to him here. Yeah, wow, that's a great violinist. Maybe yeah. not as fast as Vikinger Olafsson in those Goldberg <laughs> variations, but uh, still pretty impressive. Actually, very impressive. What am I saying? Anyway, Hadlin, the pianist, has a light music box quality to his piano at times as Dalina rips through his lines with a light touch, like you heard. The intonation sounds like it might be going slightly off for a moment after the minute and 50 second mark, but with the sparks flying as they are, this hardly matters. This is an exciting performance, and Dalina finds his tuning again quickly. The movement is completely in character, with Hodland on piano perhaps holding back a bit of drama. It's exciting nonetheless. I gotta say, if um, you know, there's all this like there's all these rules in classical music, but if you're hearing a great, exciting performance, and it kind of slightly goes off, that's okay with me. You know, this as long as the <laughs> momentum is uh, preserved and they find their feet you know, again right. without having to you know stop down. Track five is a piece by Lily Boulanger, someone who would have been one of the great composers of the uh, 20th century, but she died of, uh, I think, TB at uh, 24 years old. She was very young. Yeah, and her sister Nadia became one of the great teachers of uh, composers in the 20th century. And she was a composer herself, but she stopped composing, I guess. Lily was the younger sister. Anyway, this is her Nocturne from 1911. I got to say, though, the pieces that she did write are all fantastic. It's just that she's very young, and you just imagine she would have gotten, mm. you know, into more interesting kind of you know territory as she got older, as often happens. Anyway, this is her Nocturne from 1911. It's a beautiful work, and it needs to be better known. It's been being recorded a bit lately, and uh, Lily Boulanger, the younger of the sisters, has a great sense of melody and an ear for harmonies that will make that melody register. Dalene plays this lyrically with variations of tone, and I also want to say variations of bow touch that subtly make the melodic line breathe and register emotionally. This piece is over way too soon. It's gorgeously interpreted here, and I want to be the first one to introduce you to this work, so let's listen to the beginning.
we keep uh, going off of that gorgeous mm-hmm. melody from there. Beautiful work. Violin and piano duos might want to pick that up and perform it more. It's really great. Track six through nine, Sergei Prokofiev, Sonata number two in D major, here for violin and piano, opus 94A. And 94A, because opus 94 is the original version for flute and piano. It was um, David Oistrakh who suggested to Prokofiev that this would work well as a violin work as Mm. well. It has a rather serene beginning, uh, cleanly and clearly phrased by Dalina. The first movement is a four-movement work, labeled moderato. Hadlin's piano comes up with an appealing clarity in this. Let's hear the opening for this. This is a pretty famous work, actually. You may have heard it before. into a new episode there. The opening exposition is actually repeated. This is a very classically conceived work. This was written in, I guess, the era of uh, neoclassicism when they Mm. were kind of using those uh, forms again. At 3 minutes and 52 seconds, the violin emphatically starts the development section with a strongly bowed staccato solo line, which the piano comes in to draw out. The section gets dramatic with strong bowing and louder dynamics overall. At 5 minutes and 50 seconds, the recapitulation starts with a muted quality on the violin. The variety of tone maintains interest in the repeated themes. Second movement, scherzo, marked presto. The piano sets the tone here with a quick line with a lot of ostinato patterns thrown in. The violin plays in quick, fragmentary phrases and gets some good slashing sounds in toward the end of the first minute. Dalina is capable of making even the ugly sounds beautiful. Prokofiev did like to have those ugly sounds yes. in there. Yeah. Mm. And to be honest, though, I wish they were ugly here because he kind of <laughs> makes them nice because the intention is for them to be ugly. Still, the effects come across with their meaning understood, if not <laughs> you going, ooh, what was that, you know? At a minute and 50 seconds, there's a music box-like trio section interrupted by strong lines and trilling patterns. At around the 3 minute and 10 second mark, the opening is back. So this is a ternary form movement, A-B-A. It's a bit sleeker for the repeat in the violin, who quietens down again for the opening, but rises up for the accents and more jarring sections. Movement 3, Andante, the slow movement. This has an appealing opening melody played with a lovely tone and dynamic by Dalena. He generally keeps to quiet, subtle sounds, and the handoffs of the theme to the piano are immaculately taken when they occur. This brief movement is highly melodic throughout. The final movement, fourth one, Allegro con Brio, comes across as a raucous dance with Hotland digging in on his piano bass notes and chords. And the same from Dalina on the violin, getting maximum texture and volume from the instrument. He keeps that gorgeous tone throughout. The piano has some strong dynamics, which pull back by 3 minutes 15 seconds, and I like the clarity of Hodlin's ostinato line here. Dalina comes in to play his melody over it, achieving light variety with his tone in the leaps to different registers. There are also harmonics thrown in there. The ending is powerfully played, with the piano bass booming out, and I want to sample the uh, ending the last 30 seconds of this piece.
wonder a little about the tonality there too. I'm thinking going for excitement though, and that's what's really uh, yeah. important to me. Okay, Cause I think he he may have been going off a little bit there too. No worries though. Next, we have the composer Grzyna Bacevich, who's uh, the Polish composer. She's lived in the 20th century, and her music has been making quite a comeback in the last two or three years or so. Uh, the Chandos label has recorded a lot of it, and people are picking it up, and it's good to hear it, her violin and piano works played here. Her first um, work here is a humoreska, humoresque, from 1953. It starts rather harshly, then goes into a lighter running melody. This contrast is what the piece is built on, so we get knotty, brash sections followed by light, repeated note lines on the violin. The piano has a lot of playful ostinato in the high end at 1 minute and 25 seconds. The violin plays over it, and quick changes of feeling follow. There's a capriccioso style to this piece. It speeds up towards its playful ending, and I'd like to hear that ending. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty exciting playing all through this album. Track 11 by Bacevich again. A lullaby. I'm not going to try to say that Polish word. <laughs> Kolisanka, but I don't know how, it, how it's pronounced. Anyway, a complete contrast here with an ostinato in the piano providing a bed for the violin's gently rocking 3-4 melody. It goes into the high end of the violin with playing on the harmonics as the piano lightens to accompany. It ends beautifully on the violin's harmonics. Track 12. Bacevich Slavonic Dance. The violin starts this out with the piano providing underpinning harmony. This starts out as a song and rather a sad one. At one minute and eight seconds, the dance proper starts and it's jumpy and highly rhythmic. The violin gets ample opportunity to show some technique here. The melodic turns are folk-like. The music builds up in volume towards the end. And I got to say, Bacevich really knows how to end a work. I'm going to play the last yeah. 30 seconds of this one too. It's also... Pretty exciting. At the very end, the uh, violin almost sounded like, uh, what's that electronic instrument uh, that you hear in all those sci-fi movies? Oh, the, the theremin. Uh, the theremin, yeah. Mm -hmm. He almost had like a theremin sound going there. Okay, the last track on the album by B Grazina Bacevich is called Stained Glass Window, which is what the album is named after. The title track, it's an early work for Bacevich. The opening is a lightly bowed lower violin note and a harmonic note. The piano sprinkles in some high harmony. The violin is almost a sounding shadow, so light is the touch of the bow. He stays fairly light throughout, but stronger melodies appear as the piece goes on. The whole piece is rather ghostly in tone, and the violin is left to play alone for portions of it, with only high end of the keyboard chord rolls accompanying. Uh, the piece ends on a violin double-stopped trill and some ending high piano notes. I think I'm going to skip sampling this one just because... I think it'll be inaudible. It's actually a pretty quiet piece. Right. Anyway, give that a sample for yourself. 
That's the end of the album, and this is a beautifully engineered recording, very spacious, so a hat tip to the engineer and producer Jens Brown of Take 5 Music Production, who is behind the board for this. We're hearing what makes Dalena such a big deal as a young violinist on this recording. The ringing of emotion out of melodic lines by light changes in the bow pressure, the beautiful phrasing throughout, the virtuosity in the third movement of the Ravel. He has so many attributes that make him a young player to keep an ear out for, and he's matured a lot since his playing when we last heard him on adult music in the Nielsen and Sibelius violin concertos. Also, he's taking a lot more chances here. He's throwing caution to the wind, and sometimes you can hear him go slightly out of tune. But when exciting playing like that is happening, as long as it's momentary, it doesn't bother me. I like to hear playing like that, so I really commend that from him. Christian Ila Hodlin makes a big impression as a pianist as well, playing with exemplary quality and interacting well with Dalinet. These two seem to play really well together. The album is a nice combination of violin and piano hits, along with Bachevich's lesser-known works. And they should be better known, so this is a good place to hear them. It's an excellent release. Yeah, I thought they were really enjoyable performances. It's 20th century music, full of charm, a bit of mystery. You get some elements that are folky mixed with modern ideas and the different types of dreamy sections. And then there's a lot of playing with a lot of gusto, as you said. Mm. And so what comes out is a really well-balanced program with a lot of variety and a lot of exciting spots and lyrical things to enjoy as well. And I sense that his playing has matured and become more daring since we heard him last time. So yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot too. Maybe he heard the adult music podcast and what we said about him. He decided to make us happy. What do you think? If he did, if that's the case, he did. And thank you. And keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. Okay. I always try to go for a contemporary composer if I can. And this time I've got a Greek composer because I'm kind of taking the handoff from you from Constantine uh, Alexander last week. We're right. sort of tag teaming with the Greek musicians here. So this week I've got composer George Contogiorgos. Uh, his album, De Chirico, Piano Trios and Duets. And this is performed by the Galan Trio and <laughs> released by Phasma Music. Now, the label Phasma Music was kind enough to send me the uh, CD booklet notes digitally, which was, thank you very much for that. Yeah. But I want to say the CD booklet notes don't list who the uh, Galan Trio are, who the three players are. I had to go to their website to find this. And uh, according to the website, they are Petros Boras on the piano, Babis Karasavidis on the violin, and Marina Kolovu on the cello. And apologies for any mispronunciations there. I used to actually know the sounds of Greek. I can't remember them anymore. I haven't heard them in so long. Anyway, the word galan is proto-Germanic and means, alternatively, to sing or enchant, to cry, call, or scream, or to cast spells, practice sorcery, or sing charms. That sounds like a pretty fantastic yeah, name. Pretty cool. For an ensemble. It has a lot of meanings. Okay. George Contogiorgos has been around for quite a while and has written some popular songs in the past, and we're going to hear him reference them in some of these pieces. Anyway, the first piece we're going to hear is uh, his piece, De Chirico, inspired by the symbolic painter Giorgio De Chirico, born in 1888 in Volos in Greece, where he lived during his youth. Now, <laughs> De Chirico's sort of ethnic background is complicated. He was born in Greece. He's Italian nationally, but his father, who was Italian, had a Greek kind of grandparents or something like that. Mm, so it's very, okay. it's very Greek and Italian sort of mixed up. And uh, 
the painter de Chirico, I actually know him from Thomas Pynchon's novel V, because he gets mentioned a lot in that novel. And then as a result, I wound up looking at his paintings. So I know a little bit about what they look like. You can kind of check that out online. That's the nice thing about having the internet is you can look at paintings right. that you might not know. And I have to say, again, thank you to Phasma Music for sending me the booklet notes because I wouldn't know what these four <laughs> movement uh, titles refer to without them. So the first movement is called Evaristo in Action. Evaristo was Giorgio de Chirico's father. And the movement alludes to the hard and intense work he did designing and building bridges and stations along railway lines. He was hired by the Hellenic government to modernize the construction and develop new railways in Thessaly. He also constructed the Mount Pelion line, along which ran the little train of the fourth movement of this work, that still runs on a major part of the original line. Wow. Hmm. Let's hear a sample of this before I start talking about it, so we can get this uh, composer's sound world in our ears. What we heard is a lot of Conza uh, Giorgos's uh, sound world. He like, uses those harmonics a lot, and also we heard the uh, two string lines sort of interweaving polyphonically with each other. That's another um, mm-hmm. technique that he likes to exercise in his works, and we'll be hearing a lot of both of those approaches on this album and in these works. So the piano part comes across as solid. So I guess that's Evaristo himself. He's probably a solid guy. The strings play very high harmonics. They're sounds rather than harmonies to me. The violin gets some interesting sounds while the cello plays a repeating two-note pattern that moves around after the opening. There are a lot of ostinato lines in this movement, sounding like repetitive hard work. From 1 minute and 30 seconds to 1 minute and 50 seconds, there's a decelerando that's well taken by the trio. After that, at the 2-minute mark, there's a brief melody. Then the granitic piano comes back in, introducing more work-like activity from the ensemble. The piano plays a powerful bass pattern while the cello and violin get locked into their patterns. We hear the opening once again at around the 3 minutes and 40 second mark. I don't know if that's correct, but you can check. Then the cello gets a brief soliloquy. The piece is then brought to an end. The second movement, Child Giorgio, sounds like uh, children's melodies. It references um, Giorgio de Chirico's youth. And it highlights the careless years of his childhood. Let's listen to Conto Giorgos's idea of childlike melodies. Pretty, yeah. Three four rhythm. It seems like uh, 
waltz rhythms do childhood very well somehow. The cello and violin come in, as you heard, with a light melody and do clash with each other harmonically at times. The waltzing rhythm puts its stamp on a lot of the material in this movement. The third movement is uh, called Hofgarten Arcades and creates a moods of nostalgia, melancholy, and estrangement, emotions that de Chirico experienced during a dark period of his life in Florence and Munich. He said, The Roman arcade is fate. Its voice speaks in riddles, which are filled with a peculiarly Roman poetry. This starts with ghostly sul ponticello chords, meaning on the bridge of the violin, and sounds a bit disembodied. There's a lot of variety of moods between movements, but the movements themselves tend to stick with the same mood. Again, we get into a set of ostinato patterns by the beginning of the first minute, but this dries up and we're back to the triplet feel of the opening. This movement also moves in triplets at times, but it has a completely different feel than the previous movement. The linear threads produced by the violin and cello over the piano's heavy bass are pretty intriguing. The piano takes the lead at around the 2 minute and 35 second mark and changes its material every so often. The rhythmic suddenly shifts at times as well. At 3 minutes and 45 seconds, the cello starts a solo melody that trades back and forth with the violin. They start completing each other's lines, and this leads back to the rather off-kilter opening. It's not an unappealing movement, despite the dark mood spoken about in the notes. And the fourth movement, Little Train, imitates the sounds produced by the emblematic steam train in many of de Chirico's paintings, crossing woods, passing bridges over rivers, instantly groaning and chiming on the way uphill Mount Pelion to Milies. I hope I said that right. The final destination of the journey. The composer says that it moves him to mention that this little train used to make a stop at Agria, uh, the picturesque seaside where he moved for good in 2009. The rhythm of this movement does suggest a train rhythm, though it gets interrupted periodically. One gets a sense of a train climbing the hill by the decelerando uh, from a minute and 40 seconds onwards. I thought this was really cute, and I want to sample that. kind of get the idea of the train uh, struggling up the hill and then yeah. the uh, two high strings would be like the train whistle, I guess. I found this movement rather cute and the train arrives emphatically at its destination at the end. All right, so we go on to a new work called An Unwithering Kiss. This is track five. It's based on Conte George Gose's song of the same title. Lots of counterpoint and timbre differences are heard between the combination of instruments. The music is described by Christos Hatzis, as like a dream of the original music, melting, bending, liquefying. And that's a good description of what we're going to hear right at the beginning of this piece. This is pretty quiet, but I'll try to sample it because I think it's kind of unique. Haunting music. Yeah. 
By the way, I want to mention the notes for these um, works are written by either Conto Giorgos or this guy, Christos Hatzis. And he's also gets a bio in the booklet note, although he's he doesn't perform on the album at all. He seems to imply in his notes that he's sort of Conto Giorgos's he's a composer himself, first of all. And he seems to have assisted Conto Giorgos on some of these compositions. It's really not made clear in the booklet. And I am a little uh, curious as to what his role on this album was. I'm assuming this is an album of Conto Giorgos's compositions, though, because he gets credit for all the works. So we heard the odd, haunting opening, the harmonics of the strings bringing a ghostly feeling to the melody. The high end of the piano makes the piece feel delicate, even childlike. At the one minute mark, the instruments come in full toned, and the thematic material becomes more urgent. As the music continues, bits of string effects float by. Harmonics, vibratoless playing, and pizzicato, but they're momentary. The piano carries a lot of the thematic material in this section, occasionally handing off to the strings. By the fourth minute, aggressive figures drive the chord pattern forward. Then at four minutes and 25 seconds, we're back to the ghostly opening. It's a timbrely inventive evocation of the original song. Track six, Before the Rain Starts, a duet for violin and piano. So there's no cello in this one. This was commissioned by none other than Hilary Hahn, the great American oh. violinist, as part of uh, her In 27 Pieces in the Hilary Hahn Encores Contest. And it received uh, honorable mention. So it was up there in the rankings, but didn't win. Conte Giorgos uh, says the title is a metaphor for the recent inevitable political and economic crisis in Greece, where politicians recklessly spend public money, mostly borrowed from Europe, and the economy collapsed. We remember this. We read about yeah. this in the news. Mm -hmm. This starts on the violin, just playing lightly and vibratolessly. The piano comes in with some brief decorative notes high in its range. I like the way the material slowly transfers to the piano by the end of the first brief section. A second section begins in the violin and proceeds in much the same way as the opening, picking up a dance rhythm briefly in the first minute. This brief work changes its approach a lot for a three-plus minute work. It's not a theme in variations, but its brief sections suggest that form. So there are like these little sections, if not the approach. There are some cleverly inserted violin harmonics toward the end. Tracks 7 through 9 are the three movements of a piece called Flowing Memories. Conto Giorgos writes of this piece that as time goes by and friends become fewer or lost on the road, uh, winters become longer and some are shorter. <laughs> ain't, ain't that the truth? Anyway, memory is more uncontrolled and intrusive, allowing remembrances to flow spontaneously and sometimes endlessly. A movie film freely unfolding and projected within us on an inner giant screen. Fortunately, the filter of time alleviates the pain, letting beautiful, bright images and romantic moments dominate the landscape of the soul. Nicely said. Yeah. And it's something both of us are thinking of a lot more, too. <laughs> so I paid special attention to this work, needless to say. Anyway, the first movement, Moderato Asai Con Moto, begins with a repetitive melodic series over which consecutively developed secondary melodic sequences occur, according to the composer. From what I heard, this starts rather ominously in the bass end of the piano. The violin and cello both come in playing a melody over this, at first in unison, and they eventually separate and start twining around each other. By the second minute, there's a dance rhythm. It sounds like a tango, but may very well be a similar-sounding Greek dance. The andante movement is purely romantic. It starts with the solo piano playing a slow, funereal passage that sounds like it's out of the 19th century. 
let's uh, sample this. It's, this is very straightforward. I think people will enjoy it right away. It's a pretty melody. There, There is a violin and cello in there, but mm. the piano gets a long introduction in this particular work. The violin comes in later and repeats the melody in its low end, and it's easily mistaken for a cello here, but we hear the cello in the right channel come in and play another melody, so this comes across as contrapuntal. I should mention the violin is in the left channel and the cello is in the right channel, so in this piece... The violin will often play in its lower end and the cello in its higher end, so it can be confusing to know which is which. They start harmonizing. We get a variation of the theme after the three-minute mark with more forward movement to it due to the quicker note values. The piano gets a solo section that hands off to the violin and cello at about the four-minute and 45-second mark. In the fifth minute, the melody in the strings gets more hesitant. The piano comes in at the 5 minute 50 second solo to set things straight. I like Petros Boras's sensitive playing in this movement. The cello gets the opening melody at the end, with the violin now playing the competing melody. It's a melodic slow movement with traditional melody and deep emotion. The third and final movement, Allegro Moderato, starts with contrapuntal and atonal passages. Now, atonal means that there's no tonal center. It doesn't mean it's going to be really dissonant, though. And then it recalls and summarizes the two previous movements. It starts with a hesitant line in the strings, full of stops. Then the piano comes in staccato to draw the idea out further. At 39 seconds, the cello, and shortly after, the violin, plays a melody that starts in canon. The piano seems to be a disruptive or guiding force throughout the piece, including in the romantically conceived second movement. This contrapuntal approach goes on for about half the movement. Then in the third minute, we get scales from the piano ushering in something resembling the first movement. Then the romantic melody of the second movement at 3 minutes and 50 seconds. The ending of the piece sounds thick in its harmony, but resolves gently with a clear ending chord. Track 10, Dominance, conceived as an encore piece for piano trio. Christos Hatzis writes that in May 2012, the political conversation in Europe was dominated by two opposing viewpoints, the debtor nations, represented by Greece, and the creditor nations, championed by Germany. Originally, Conte Giorgos and Hatzis, who, he says, assisted the composer in this work, were going to create instrumental arrangements of Georgia's songs, which were popular hits in the 1970s, but felt compelled to contrast the Greek music with a more Germanic music, influenced by the political, economic discussion then dominating the media. He says that the ideas in Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, and its ideas were unconsciously translated into the metaphorical language of this short work. And you know, I happen to have that book on my shelf here, but I haven't read it yet. Now I guess I'm going to have to because <laughs> it came up. This is why I have books that I haven't read because somebody will mention it and I'll be, oh, I can now read it. 
Anyway, the exuberant Greek music gradually becomes increasingly self-involved and self-defeating, while the music in the minor mode, the German music, gradually evolves into deeper layers of musical understanding and continuity. So the opening is a Greek dance. It's very happy. Let's hear that. piano line sounds pretty uh, intricate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got a lot of these little sort of uh, tailing um, sort of scales in there while it's playing the chords. So it's a major key and sounds bright and happy. I like the smooth piano trills in the accompaniment. They draw attention along with the string's thematic playing. The dance gets uh, sort of more harmonically dark as the piece goes on. The German theme interleaves with it like a double variations in form, one alternating with the other. It's more melancholy, <laughs> as are Germans generally, and it's pretty interesting how smoothly the two themes lead into each other, with the tempo suddenly slowing to the German theme and bursting to a new speed for the ebullient Greek theme. I like the breakdown of the strings in the first half of the first minute, where the violin plays a forlorn-sounding repeated two-note figure. The ending chord of the piece has an upward scooping sound to it, and I want to hear the last 30 seconds to see what has happened to our Greek and German themes in this piece. chord it's kind of like (laughs) it sort of missed it and then kind of went on went up to it it's pretty funny boy how do we get there from that uh, wonderful happy beginning well you'll have to hear the whole piece to find out all right track 11 chasing lost time this is a duet for cello and piano and it was conceived while the composer was flying from europe to north america in 2008 and crossing several time zones he was reminded of the relativity of time And he completed this piece, which he had already started in Athens, while suffering jet lag from that trip, unable to sleep and behaving like a sleepwalker. He says he had synesthesia-like experiences during the composition, the waltz-like theme producing a sense of white color, an actual experience of freshly fallen snow after a massive three-day long snowstorm, which completely covered Toronto. The slow pace of the music produced a synesthetic brown color a different experience of the seemingly endless Arizona desert, which also had a radical temperature difference from Toronto. Let's, uh, let's hear the opening of this work. Yeah, that's generally what I feel like when I get off the plane from Japan to <laughs> Europe. <laughs> At the 7 minute and 13 second mark in the piece, we hear Big Ben. The piano repeats the theme and the cello plays a line around it. That's the Westminster chimes, of course. 
The writing around the theme is very attractive, and this is a weary line recalling the opening is heard as the piece heads to the end. The Big Ben um, sound is means that we've kind of arrived at a time that we can sort of handle again. Anyway, track 12, the last track, last piece, Shifting Balances. This is a duet for violin and cello. So on this album, I should point out, we've heard um, duos for all combinations of these three instruments. So this one's violin and cello. The booklet notes here are a little confusing in the English translation, but you can get the idea of what's happening from them. So the piece depicts an ambivalent conversation between violin and cello. It starts atonally in the cello, then the violin, and then the violin repeats the line with a different approach. Then two strings interact with transient movements in tonal series and scales, giving the impression of a fleeting balance between them. At the end, they gain a harmonic coexistence. The cello line is actually attractive despite its many different tones. It sounds weary and heavy-spirited. The violin comes in in counterpoint. The tone of this work is somber. The two come into a sort of agreement just before the one-minute mark, where the two come into a chordal harmony. The violin engages in a lot of sul ponticello and harmonic notes as the cello plays. It even plays pizzicato at one brief point, and imitates that rhythm in double-stopped chords. The cello continues on with its theme. There's another moment of harmony at 2 minutes and 48 seconds. I'm enjoying the sudden changes in triplets that come in at times. And we hear the cello play harmonics at 3 minutes and 40 seconds. That's Marina Kolovu in the right channel, while violinist Babis Karasavidis is in the left. At the very end, we hear the third and final consonant harmony in a chord. Conto Giorgos is a composer with a lot of appealing, contrasting ideas. His style is a bit minimal. He uses a lot of ostinato, but they often overlap in interesting ways. And in multi-movement works, he'll contrast material between movements and not in the same movement. That may be too much of a generalization. There are contrasting rhythms and sections in individual movements, but the contrast across movements is very noticeable. This is also true in the shorter works where the material seems to change in brief sections. It certainly keeps the listener attentive. A lot of effects are used, particularly on the strings, and especially harmonics. There is also a lot of counterpoint in his um, music, like the melody against melody. The music comes across as thoughtful. I wouldn't call it exciting, but it's got some attention-grabbing moments. It's more thoughtful than exciting is what I want to say. It's kind of, I don't want to use the word intellectual either, because it's not really that either. But the duo works sound like they'd be fun to play, actually. And it's music that uh, you might want to give a listen to. I thought it was really interesting. I was kind of compelled throughout. Yeah, Contagiogos has a really strong sense of melody. That makes sense if he used to write pop songs. He yeah. seems to be able to fit little melodies in lots of different situations. Mostly you've got traditional harmony. So these sounds blend and have nice backing. But there are some surprising elements <laughs> of sure, other kinds are. of of uh, harmonies and tones mixed in there. I found, like you say, the little episodic nature of a lot of the works makes it kind of unpredictable. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sudden changes in rhythmic motion and then in mood as well that keeps you interested in what's going on because you don't know what's going to come next. Overall, I like the tonal blend of the strings and the interesting things the piano is doing in here. I found it uh, a pretty interesting first look at a composer we haven't heard before, so I'd like to hear some more. That's it for Classical Tonight. And here we go, on to the jazz. I was kind of excited by all of these uh, albums, too. They're pretty good. Yeah. Everything here is really exciting in jazz. As always, I try to make a good selection, and things worked out really well this week. 
We're going to have that piano as a common theme, although not necessarily as the leader, at least not on the first one here, where we're going to go down to the bass, Swedish bassist Victor Nyberg, and his new recording called Home. This is on a new trad label, came out October 20th, and I couldn't find hardly any information about this recording online. <laughs> Had to search around just to find out the musicians. But why it caught my eye, you know, as I look through the new releases, I often see new names. I try to give everything a little bit of a listen to see if I'm going to put it on my keep list. And I saw the name of the pianist, Billy Test, one of our favorite young yeah. pianist. So I said, this is going to deserve a little extra attention, and I'm glad I took the time to hear it. So we've got Victor Nyberg on bass, and I believe all compositions, Billy Test on piano, and we know him as one of the pianists and organists for the WDR Big Band. We've also got another WDR Big Band member here, Johan Horlin on alto sax, and we heard him back in episode 125 on the recording Jazz Renderings, the recording of Chuck Owen's arrangements. We've got Bjorn Ingelstrom on trumpet and Rasmus Blixt on drums. Recording starts out with a track called Kiffinit, and things are off to a fun swinging start with this one. The horns bring it in with Horland sax following the descending piano and bass line on an eight bar intro. The horn melody is in unison and then splits off into harmonies over walking bass from Nyberg. Listen for the cool bass and piano figures underneath. It's 36 measures, kind of an extended end section into a bass solo from Nyberg. Let's hear how this gets going into the start of his solo. swing and start there and yeah. Nyberg gets the solo first we'll check out one of his solos later he's followed by Ingelsom on the trumpet with a very fluid sense of swing and Horland follows that with an expressive alto sax solo then Billy tests charms with the swinging star and nice chiming notes really graceful trill in the middle of his solo there too they take it around the melody again with some final phrase repeats and then keep things going with some simultaneous sax and trumpet improvisations over ringing chords from test for almost another two minutes to a fade out that won't bother you mike the fade out <laughs> i actually wrote the word boo because it was <laughs> halloween when i heard it <laughs> as everyone knows mike does not like fade outs when there are improvisations taking place but I did say on this one, it worked okay because, um, you know, they were kind of soloing, but they were finished and they were soloing over the vamp. And I said, well, here it actually works okay. okay. So I wasn't too... Um, <laughs> too disappointed with that one. <laughs> I wasn't too unhappy with this, but All I was right. nevertheless unhappy because it is a fade out. Right. <laughs> I'm very, um, what's the word, uh, extremist on that uh, yes. stance. Anti-fade. Yeah. I'm very anti-fade. All right, now we've got an intro and a main piece that's home. And first, the intro to home. 
The intro is a little more than a minute long. Harmonized horns and bowed bass that move in sync with piano chords below. There's no drums here, and it makes a really interesting tonal blend moving along calmly in phrases. Test gets a slow rhythmic piano figure going to connect it into the main track of Home, track three. Horland takes the melody gently over ringing bass from Nyberg for a 16 measure section, and then there's a little longer section with Engelstam joining in on harmonized lines. Nyberg gets a very melodic bass solo that rings out on this tune, so let's check out some of his bass playing here. really making it sing there. Nice yeah, Those piano chords were beautiful too, like the touch he has yeah, and a really nice sound. Very nice. Well, Horland follows with the solo on sax and he has a really great tone. It's got a lot of different dimensions to it. He sort of matches his tone with each song specially. Then the harmonized horn section comes back uh, to take it to a soft ending. Track four is called Five! Exclamation point. Super syncopated fun for this one. The rhythm section gives it a 16 measure intro and the horns come in for a jumpy 24 measure melody over the choppy seas below. Horland is up first for a solo over the syncopation, but it breaks into a driving swing soon enough. Let's check out some of that action. swinging along. Engelstrom's next with a exciting trumpet solo, but then Test has a real knockout solo on this one. We just have to hear some of this okay. later in the tune. He's a wow. man who's not afraid to walk through those dangerous tonal neighborhoods. That's Billy Test, everyone. Keep, <laughs> keep saying that name until everybody knows about him. 
As you hear, Nyberg gets a go after that as well, before the choppy syncopation comes back to a break to bring the horns in on the melody to wrap it up with Blixt churning up excitement on the drums underneath. Track 5 is called Breaking Point. Something different for this one, Blixt has an extremely busy drum beat sustained with low ominous bass and piano figures bumping below, contrasting flowing horn lines from harmon muted trumpet and soprano sax above. The horns push to a final dissonance over improvised exchanges. The harmony below shifts to different modes and the rhythm section keeps an insistent push. They get back to the horn theme and have a few final dissonances to push before the ending comes. Track 6, La Mer. Ingolstam gets the ballad melody solo here. Sounds like on flugelhorn. Horland sits this one out. It's got an even, slightly bossa type beat and pretty chord changes for the 24 measure melody. Test gets an extended solo, showing off his fine touch, and Ingolstam is back for a melody section that ends over some dense rhythmic chord clusters from Test. Track 7, The Giant. This is a really interesting one. Nyberg gets it started with four measures of a plodding open interval bass figure. Drums and piano are in for another round, and then the horns are in for the melody, which turns out to be a very cool altered chord 12-bar blues with fun glisses in the horn lines. Let's check this one out. Really sexy. They go around it once more, and Ingolstam is up first for a solo with an unexpected modulation. And the first section is 16 measures, interestingly, before they get back to the blues pattern after that. Let's hear that interesting shift that comes up there when he starts. feel there and they'll get back to the blues pattern. Horland and Test both follow with intense solos as well. They play through the melody once more then the horns get some improv before joining together for the final phrase to finish it up. Track 8, In a Flash. 
Blix gets the 10 measure intro going, joined by syncopated bass and piano figures that push ahead. The horn line melody is interesting over the modal harmony, flowing over the syncopation for 16 measures. A sudden break to swing for 4 measures, and then back to the syncopation for 12 measures, before it gets swinging again into a Billy Test solo. Pretty exciting stuff to start out. Let's hear what this sounds like. solo from Billy Test there. Check out the rhythms that his left hand gets into in this one. Horland has a hard swinging solo and then they vamp on the syncopated chords for Blixt to do some tight drumming, working things up into another run through the melody to a big finish. And the recording ends up with track 9, Him. This is a contemplative and tender bass and piano duet from Nyberg and Test and Nyberg makes the bass really sing on the melody. It seems mostly composed and Test gets the focus for the final eight measures to bring it to a slowed and fitting ending. And that's it. It's an interesting recording owing to Nyberg's compositions, which are unique and have a lot of variety and style and structure. There's lots of different grooves too. We're swinging, sometimes floating on ballads, changing up like on In a Flash, or hurdling incessantly forward like on Breaking Point. Fun horn lines and exciting solos from Horlin and Engelstrom. Nyberg himself has some impressive solos too, and he can really sing out on the bass melodic lines. Tight stuff from Blixt and the always impressive Billy Test, who catches your ear whether he's accompanying or soloing. You won't be disappointed giving this one a listen. Yeah, you want to say he's accompanying, you're listening to him too, but he's not, you know, hogging the attention. He's definitely a great accompanist as well. Yeah, yeah he really delivered the goods on this album too, so we should be glad that we heard him. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there's really a lot to keep the ear occupied on this album because there's a variety of approaches from straight swing to ballads to complex rhythmic patterns like in Breaking Point and heavily syncopated rhythm in five and even a sexy creep in The Giant. Yeah. This album comes across as a bit of a calling card, but it's one I'd certainly pay attention to and use because of all the different styles. The recording is commendably clear and the soloing is inventive and mood setting in the ballads. And, of course, I like the Billy Tess way with his solos. He has this way of spontaneously getting some, like, inspiration in the middle of the solo, like he'll be playing, and then suddenly he'll insert something completely new and unexpected in there. And you can kind of tell it's an idea he's had like in the moment. Like that kind of yeah. Cuban tinge he had on that one in there after those right. crazy intervals to start out. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. He makes me sit up when he does things like that. He produces a lot of spontaneous moments. It's a pretty short album at 40 minutes, but that's an acceptable length, just like the jazz albums of, uh, shall we say, yesteryear. Yeah. <laughs> but when you hear so many interesting compositional and soloistic ideas, you keep wishing you could hear more. So I kind of wanted it to be a little longer, but that's okay. This is fine. Yeah. And we got introduced to Victor Nyberg, and yeah. I'd like to hear some more from him in the future. All these players have really good solos, and they work well together. 
Yeah, melodic bass player, too, on his solos, too. I really enjoyed yeah, that really nice. element of his playing. All right, now we've got two albums that are really different and special in their own way. Mm. And we're going to start out with Bridges. This is on Smoke Sessions Records. It's the new recording from pianist Kevin Hayes, bassist Ben Street, and drummer Billy Hart. It came out October 20th. Kevin Hayes, the pianist, came up playing with Nick Bergnola, Steve Wilson, Benny Golson. He also did some duets with Brad Meldow. Ben Street was played with John Schofield, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Mark Turner, and Billy Hart, the senior member here, 82 years young, came up playing with Jimmy Smith, associated with Herbie Hancock, and a really long resume of too many names to name and still <laughs> sounding great. And this recording follows up on their 2021 recording, All Things Are, also on Smoke Sessions, and we discussed that way back in episode 18, Modernist wow. Martini. That's a good title. It was a good title, yeah. Yeah. Kind of wish we could use it again. <laughs> <laughs> I could go for a martini right about I now. I could go for a martini right now, too. Yeah. In fact, I don't know. Anyway, the recording is going to start out with a tune called Butterfly. It's a Kevin Hayes original. It's a relaxed 3-4 tempo and a pretty melody that sounds kind of beatly and Billy Joel-ish all at the same time. <laughs> Hayes gives a solo intro for 16 bars, and then Street and Hart join in, and we hear that section again. Let's hear it just get started. to the contrasting 16 measure B section. The two halves of the A seem kind of similar, but that's really nice contrast there. And, and then it'll go back to the A and Hayes improvises from there. This is a relaxed and flowing with melodic ideas and a smooth touch and attention to dynamics. Hart has a clicky lightness with nice fills underneath. And Street has a very nice solo on this one too, getting an almost vocal quality to his melodic lines with some nicely placed harmonics in there too. So let's hear some of his bass solo on this tune. Thank you. 
Hayes chimes back in on the B section, and they stick with that for two rounds and take it to an unexpected chord at the end. Just great musicality here on this opening tune. Track two is called Capricorn. This is a Wayne Shorter tune. It's from his 1969 Supernova album, and the original <laughs> tune uh, had Jack DeJanet and Chick Corea both on drums. <laughs> wow. Now, I remember this, and I listened to it. I'm wondering as I'm listening to this, is this really the same tune? I'm asking myself at the start of this. Hayes starts it out solo with sparse ringing notes, kind of like droplets. Rhythmic repeated note brings in light cymbals from heart and streets bass, and it works into a steady chugging tempo. Hayes' improvisations come in lines that swell and ripples with interesting chords. The trio synergy is great with lots of rhythmic things gelling and feeding ideas. Street has an interesting melodic bass solo here too, and Hayes works around a melodic riff idea to bring things to an end. Very free-flowing and spontaneous. Track three, Song for Peace, Kevin Hayes' original. This one's really beautiful. A simple melody phrase with a tempo like a deep slumber. Each time Hayes finds different colors to paint it with and improvise lines that flow out naturally. And let's hear some of that I wish we could just listen to the whole thing right through, but let's uh, hear some of what develops here once it gets going. flows right along like that and arrives at a peaceful ending. This reminded me of one of the things we liked and discussed when we heard Bill Charlap's Street of Dreams recording. We had some really slow tempo pieces on it that kind of give a feeling of a sense of suspended time mm. where the music is not sort of slave to the tempo. And here you just have that slow heartbeat and those phrases just seem to evolve and float out on their own. I really enjoyed the phrasing in this one. Yeah, it's song for peace too. That's that's where the peace yeah. uh, lives in that suspended time. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, track four, Lennon and McCartney. 
with a little help from my friends, right? Everyone knows this tune, and two little snare hits bring it right into the famous melody. Heart has a light clicky groove, and Street has snappy bass under Hayes' flowing phrasing of the melody, but let's pick it up from a harmonic change where Hayes starts improvising, and here are some of his flowing ideas on this great melody. It's a little bit more rhythmic towards the end, connects back to the melody, and then there's another lifting modulation into some vamping with some improvisations to a slowed ending. A really joyful take on this tune. Track five, Row, Row, Row. It's a gently flowing waltz from Kevin Hayes. The melody has an A section that's nine measures, sort of like eight with an extra measure to breathe before it repeats. Then there's a contrasting five measure B section with piano arpeggios. Pretty harmonies and chord voicings from Hayes, then back to the A section idea, but with more flowing improvisations from there, with smooth water-like connection of lines. Row, row, row really is a good title for this one. Street has inventive moving bass underneath, and gets a solo on this one as well. And one more A-A-B-A melody pattern finishes it up. Track 6, Throughout, this is a Bill Frizzell tune from his 1982 recording In Line, which was a very atmospheric solo recording. Here, it's a little slower than his version, keeping the contemplative feeling with the slow 3-4 piano arpeggios. Hayes floats delicate melody notes above with long bass notes from street and very light decorations from heart. It's sparse, but swells with expression in spots, and Hayes' improvisations have some lovely lines of note trickles and ringing chords. The ending becomes lighter and lighter with a slight slowdown. Track 7, Irah. This is Billy Hart's composition from his 1993 recording Amethyst. The intro has a syncopated line of bass and left-hand piano working with bass, drum, and toms. Hayes adds some fills and the eight-measure idea repeats. The melody is a light and pretty eight-measure phrase that repeats and modulates each time. So it modulates twice, giving it a unique lifting feeling. So let's hear this.
yeah, moving right up there. Hart gives it an effortless swing and Street a nice chug under Hayes' flowing improvisations. Uh, they get into some speedier lines and they connect back to the melody and an outro to mirror that rhythmic intro. And the recording finishes up with the title track, Bridges Travesia. This is a Milton Nascimento tune, the first track from his 1969 recording, Courage, a rubato solo piano start from Hayes. He makes it more rhythmic with chords, and Street joins in with some ringing bass harmonics. Hart joins in with light cymbals and clicks, and it's set off in easy motion. It's a pretty melody, and Hayes reminds you of it through his fluid lines of improvisations. So let's hear a little bit of what he does with it later in the tune. about four and a half minutes it comes down really soft i was expecting a bass solo but no <laughs> hayes works up from there gradually uh, with the melody and decorations to a slowed ending this is a beautiful recording with a focus on the beauty of tone and melodic flow hayes has a unique touch and he gets lots of colors out of the piano he uses technique to serve that musical concept the song choices match that approach very well, both in the originals here and the cover choices. Street is also a very tone-focused player, adding drive and inventive bass lines underneath everything, and Hart's drumming is sensitive, never overpowering, with just enough emphasis and lots of decoration. Listen to the solos on this recording if you want to get an idea of how music should flow effortlessly. Yeah, um, I really loved it, this album too. It really did have a sense of just yeah musical flow and just good feelings all around. I really just loved it. Mm. Kevin Hayes has that warm chord voicings. You had mentioned the, the colors he gets out of the piano. Yeah. I think it has to do with the voicings he uses. It's really fantastic. There's often a serenity to his playing too, which I yes. thought came out really strongly on with a little help from my friends and on the opening track, Butterfly, as well. He had a way with that, uh, with a little help from my friends, Melody, too, where he kind of, he compressed it a bit. He didn't leave any notes out, but right. I mean, the, he kind of squeezed it a bit. I really liked the, what he did with it, mm. the way it sounded there. Hayes is in the spotlight for most of the album. I guess the pianist would be, but we do get a few bass solos from Ben Street too, and he gets a nice padded sound on his attack, you know? Yeah. And his uh, solos are melodic. I liked that. This is really an evening album, ideal mm -hmm. for putting one back in a good mental place. And one I'll be listening to again, and this one happens to be available on CD because I already looked it up, and I'm going to really need a copy yeah. of this. I liked it a lot. This one got the seal of approval from Mrs. Russ, too. She liked oh. this one. So. Well, there it is. It's unanimous. It often isn't. <laughs> no, yeah, it often isn't, yes. <laughs> we did not enjoy the Schoenberg together last week. I imagine <laughs> so, you didn't. <laughs> kept that to my headphones, right? But this one. It's that serenity, as you said, it comes mm -hmm. through and it'll just put you in some good vibes to end the day. Yeah. 
Now the next one you're going to have to get out the hot sauce for because this yeah. one is going to get your blood pumping. And this is a new release from pianist Donald Vega. As I travel on Imagery Records came out October 27th. Vega is a native of Nicaragua pianist and composer. He emigrated to the U.S. at age 14, and he studied with jazz giants John Clayton, Billy Higgins, and piano great Kenny Barron, and he was a member of the Ron Carter Golden Striker Trio. Among other institutions, he studied at the Manhattan School of Music and the Juilliard School, where he is currently a professor. And this recording, As I Travel, it's Vega's fourth album as a leader. It's programmatic, autobiographical suite of compositions inspired by his voyage, the notes say, both geographically as an immigrant and intangibly as he has been molded through the lives of others. A lot to think about there. All original compositions here and Vega at the piano. We've got Louis Nash on drums, John Patitucci on bass, and Luisito Quintero on percussion, which adds a lot to the ambiance of this recording. Baila, dance like no one's watching. And the notes say in Nicaragua, there's so much poverty, and yet the people are known for their joy. According to Vega, they take time to celebrate every moment and dance like no one's watching. And dance you'll want to. On this one, Nash and Quintero get it going with a drum and Latin percussion eight measure intro. The melody is catchy and rhythmic, A-A-B-A form, cool piano lines at the end of the A sections, and a rhythmic change up for the B section that gets an extra measure added for suspense. It's a lot of fun, so let's hear this one get started. adds a lot of suspense there before we get back to the A. Well, Vega gets off from there improvising, starting with shorter lines and some bluesy licks. Things get exciting and busy with rhythmic chords and tremolos. And there's a solo piano spot in after that with 16th notes over left-hand arpeggios joined again by the others into a drum and percussion solo section. And then bass and piano are back in on the B section into the final A to wrap it up. They really pack the opening tune here with all sorts of exciting stuff, and you won't be let down as we go on with track two, As I Travel. There's a 16-measure intro with splashy cymbals, percussion, percussive piano chords, and trickles over Patitucci's bass intervals. The main melody is 32 measures in similar 16 measures sections padded with thick chords. Then there's another section with focus on left hand and bass figures at the start, Vega trills into his improvisations, working up tension with dense chords and dancing lines, releasing it into lighter melodic lines. Let's hear some of that as he gets his solo going. Mm -hmm. 
That's how you do tension and release. Hmm. It goes on with more runs and ringing chords, and then things lighten up for another run through the melody and a ringing rising piano line to end the tune. Track three is I Know You Can Fly. A syncopated left-hand piano riff starts this one out for an eight-measure intro. A little conga sneaks in, and they go around again with everybody in an added right-hand piano on top. Once more with Patitucci taking the riff down below. There's a 30-measure sparse melody with short phrases, but Vega adds a lot of colors with chords, and there are fun rhythmic stops and starts underneath. They go around it twice, and then Vega is on to his improvising. In addition to smooth lines marked by rhythmic interjections, you start noticing the really cool, dense chords he uses all the time. Patitucci gets a spot on this one, great acoustic bass tone and melodic sense as always with that super clear articulation. Another time around the melody, and then some cool rhythmic piano vamping with percussion to take it to a fade out. Track four is called Tomorrow's Two, originally the title track from his 2008 debut album, Tomorrow's. This one starts out with an infectious six-beat ostinato in the piano left hand, joined by the bass, and builds up with rhythmic chords. It releases into skittering cymbals and a more flowing three-beat feel before returning to the ostinato to repeat those sections. Let's take a listen to this. before soft dynamics to start Vega's solo on this one then over fabulous bass lines from Patitucci and great work from Nash and Quintero. Let's skip ahead to hear some of what's going on there in a little bit further down the tune. there and Vega keeps it kind of simmering through this one working up to some staccato chords near the end. We get a reduced rhythmic figure idea for a bass and piano vamp to feature the drums and percussion and they work that figure back into the full ostinato for a final melody section and a dizzying final piano triplet lick that you just got to hear. Track 5, Allegria. 
This one builds up with syncopated piano chords, then gets an ostinato below and percussion added. The ringing note melody has kind of an AABA shape with an extended B section. There are fun stop and start rhythms underneath, and you can hear some humming way over far in the left <laughs> channel, because it's probably so much fun to play. Vega's charging early out of the gate with skating lines into his solo. It's another exciting one over Patatucci's throbbing bass, and they go through the melody sections again into some final ostinato to an emphatic last chord hit. Track six, Disturbios. All right, <laughs> I'm just going to play the start of this one and you figure out what's going on, okay? Have you got it? It's this episode's seven eight tune. Ah, uh, okay. Because <laughs> I thought, dun, 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 at the end it sounded pretty squeezed in there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> that pushing ahead feeling. That melody seems to be an A A B form, hmm. again with an extended thirteen measure B section. Uh, then there's an eight measure interlude at the end that's kind of sparse before we hear the A A B again and kind of evaporates into a quiet start for high ringing piano ideas. Very cool groove laid down by the bass and percussion here. Vega has some cool zigzagging lines in his solo on this one into more rhythmic ideas all over this really tricky meter. And then they finish it up with one more time through the melody sections. Track seven, Isabel, the enchanting nature of you. I don't know who Isabel is, it doesn't say, but uh, this is quite enchanting with the hmm. rubato solo piano intro going from music box-like high register tones to the warmer middle register. And we should really sample this one.
our bass and drums join in there. And we get a beautiful ballad with a sensitive touch from Vega. There's a lot of space and he just trickles out notes in his solo. Warm bass tones from Patitucci and whisper light brushwork from Nash. Gorgeous piano right up to the end. Track 8, Dear Mayra. And this is a tribute to his mother. Not a ballad, but rather a flowing 6-8 tune. There's an 8-measure intro with an engaging ostinato in the left hand and bass. In the fourth measure, things hold up and float, but come back with a neat little bass and piano figure. It's a light and airy, positive-sounding tune. The pausing idea comes back, but Vega's solo lines are bubbling in this one with speedy triplet ideas. And then it's time for a Patitucci bass solo, and we should sample some of his playing because his solos are always fabulous. Let him finish because I feel it's sort of a musical violation to cut off a John Patitucci bass. <laughs> okay. Anyway, they play through the melody section again and get a vamp out section on the opening ostinato idea for Nash to get some drum interactions before the end. And the recording ends up with a tune called Beautiful Ladies. That's something we appreciate here at Adult Music. Absolutely. But of course, Mrs. Russ being the sole recipient of my beautiful lady appreciation. However, lady listeners are welcome to send in messages to Mike because... Yes, Mike is available. He's available. But he's very picky. <laughs> that's, that's why he's single, okay? Yeah. It's not because I'm some kind of like inferior male of the species or something like that. Anyway, adultmusicpodcast at gmail.com. Send in your, your correspondence. Thanks, thanks for that. I'll forward it to Mike. Beautiful ladies here, the last tune. And this has got a really exciting but complicated groove that gets things going. And the melody then seems to be a 24-measure construction that we hear twice. Let's take a little listen to this fun final tune. Thank you. 
Well, there's another section like the intro that's a little transition to a bass solo from Patitucci with rapid fire notes. And then Vega rings it out high and light to start out his solo on this one. And he gets into some flowing lines over the busy rhythms, but finds spots to punctuate the rhythms. And they get back to the melody with a syncopated vamp for Quintero to have some conga fun to the ending fade out on this tune. This recording will really get your blood pumping. There's infectious Latin grooves that come out with that added percussion from Quintero. Vega's exciting compositions are filled with cool ostinatos and little structured details that make them unique. He's got barrels full of technique, melodic and rhythmic creativity, but he also pays a lot of attention to chord voicings, which are interesting even at high speed. And we get to hear a softer and lyrical side on the ballad Isabel as well. Adding Patitucci's rock solid bass lines and cool solos, tight drum work from Nash, and you've got a winning recipe. Definitely give this one a listen. Yeah, I thought so too. I love the way Latin jazz albums like this one sound with all the percussion really well defined. And in fact, the recording seems to become more defined when the percussion come in. I just Everything kind of snaps into focus yeah. then. They always sound very present. Uh, the piano is well recorded, and the pianos of Donald Vega has a lot of really appealing ideas. In fact, I was kind of looking for a CD of this, like, only in track two. I was like, oh, I'm going to like all this, but there's no CD. I <laughs> oh, hope really? they're going to put one out now. Well, I didn't find one. There might be a site somewhere where you can get them, but I didn't find one. Anyway, if there is one, I'm interested, so let me know. Anyway, yeah, he has a lot of appealing ideas, and some of them sound like classical music. The way he'll, like, close out lines on, like, what sounds like a tonic chord. I know you don't really talk about tonic chords in jazz, but still, he it, it sounded like he would just close out the lines on a harmony. They'd have an ending, like a full stop, mm -hmm. a period. And I really liked that. He sounds like Bach sometimes, like he's getting some lines from uh, Bach figuration, like in the opening track and in Tomorrow's 2. He carries most of the album and is always interesting, mixing up his approaches. I like the way the bass was recorded with very full sound, and I'm a big John Patitucci fan yeah. <laughs> too, just like you. Melodic solo is really great. My favorite um, tracks on this album were Baya, Dance Like No One's Watching, the first track, and Disturbios, both exciting, and I especially like the piano ideas on Disturbios, yeah. but also his sunny solo on Beautiful Ladies, too. I mean, who wouldn't solo like that when Beautiful Ladies are the inspiration, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, there you go. It's an upbeat album with a beautiful ballad in there. Isabel, The Enchanting Nature of You is really beautiful. Yeah, I liked all of this a lot, and I'm interested in having a hard CD copy of it. Yeah. If one ever is or becomes available. Definitely like to have that too, yeah. Really yeah. nice work and look forward mm -hmm. to hearing more from Donald Vega. And that's it. That wraps up episode 139, Piano Piano wow. Everywhere, and it certainly was. Yeah. 139. I'm just like overwhelmed by that number. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we'll keep rolling along here. Yeah. As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Be sure to check out the same difference to jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. You'll find the link in the description. And you also hear their little promo when we finish up here in a minute. Any hints for next week's episode, Mike? You got a plan yet? I do. I don't know what kind of um, theme it's going to be. I think I got some Italian um, Baroque aria is sung by a countertenor okay but uh i just love these songs so we have to hear them again this is an exceptionally good countertenor too and um i've got some string quartet from the emerson quartet maybe okay which has vocals on it and uh schoenberg as well don't go away you're gonna like this piece it's the second oh. string quartet and then the middle one i don't want to say because i need to make sure that we can get it on uh streaming so because it's okay. on a smaller label and i'm never right. really sure what's going to happen so i don't want to say yet all right 
I don't have uh, any promises yet. It's probably going to be a best picks of the new fall releases because there's still quite a few to get through. So I may mix up instrumentation and nationalities a bit for the next week's episode. All right. I'm not planning on a contemporary composer next week, but I do have a few lined up for the coming weeks. And boy, November 3rd, November 10th, a big classical release date. Mm. So I'm going to be going well into the new year with some of these. Right. <laughs> you want to pick up the new year ones when they come out, but there's still so many good ones that we're not going to get to in the autumn here. If you're wondering, why aren't these guys decided? Well, we're actually recording a day early this week, so we've got a little yeah. bit extra time to choose the picks for next week. Yeah. I, mean, I know what I want to do, but I got to see if it's available to listen to. So, But by the time you hear this, we'll have decided, so not too long after this episode gets published, we'll also have that playlist for episode 140 up on Deezer, and you can also find a link to it on our Facebook page. So if you want to check out the recordings early, you can find that there. All right, that about does it for this episode then. Any final words, Mike? No final words. I already had no final words, and now I have no final words again. <laughs> again. <laughs> anyway, it's been a fun one. Lots of action-packed piano playing on this episode, and we'll be back again with episode 140 next week. So until then, keep listening. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. 